All right, so we're in Isaiah 56, as Brooke had for our kids a, a children's message. It, it follows in line with what we're talking about today. And so um, I kind of scrapped my intro earlier, and just as I was praying, and, and uh, I was texting back and forth with a friend of mine this morning, and uh, he is a, a pastor in L.A., I'm just asking some stuff, and, and um, man, I just want to start with this. Uh, this week and last week, ever since Memorial Day, right, uh, the, just everything has changed. Everything has been different. Now, I would have said that. This is like 91, 92 days that we have, I haven't seen some of you, right? Or at least you in 3D. I've seen a lot of flat pictures, two-dimensional on computer, right? But right now to be back in this room, it's been since March 8th. This is June 7th, right? So we've been gone a while. And, and at first, I would tell you what, what happened around the 13th of March and the world changed was coronavirus and everything shifted and it just became very different. And then while all that was going on, of course, all of us are kind of stuck at home with these safer at home rules and the different things that we're doing and work sh workplaces shutting down, all these things going on. Uh, what happened was, I mean, for the most of us, we all sat around and watched too much TV and gained coronavirus rate, right? I mean, we just kind of added some pounds and did our thing. But in the midst of that, what took place over the last few weeks was because we were kind of trapped at home and because we were watching TV, we watched as some people died on TV and it changed us. And, and I think it was a perfect storm of the coronavirus restrictions and then too much TV and watching and then a black man was shot by two redneck looking dudes, I'll be honest, right? And just kind of that, we, and people started asking questions when they're showing videotapes of him at a construction site and all these all these conversations start happening around this. And if you're not paying attention, if you're, if you're not looking closely, what you see is really people asking questions when we watch a man die. And when you watch someone die, our heart should break for the person, for the family, for whatever is taking place. But in our case, and in, in, in our culture, so often we've been so polarized by by what's taken place, and so we ask probably the wrong questions. Now, then, on Memorial Day, we all watched as George Floyd died. And we watched and we saw the video immediately of a cop kneeling on a black man for almost nine minutes. And I don't care who you are, and I don't care what color you are, we watched and we said something's wrong. And of course, the media is going in different directions, They're pulling us into these two camps again. And we talked about this last week. We talked about in Isaiah 55, the very last chapter, we talked about how we are called beyond the two teams, beyond the two sides, beyond the two points to be different, that God is calling us to be a different people. And so as we look at that and we, can, we continue thinking about that, we continue to watch as protesters and things take place and, and of course, looting and riots, and we, and we watch as all kinds of more stories unfold around this same thing. More violence, more hatred, more anger. I had a ton of conversations over the last couple of weeks, especially, uh, with all kinds of people from all over the place, from all perspectives. And and in this church, we have people, we're primarily non-white. We're more folks that are, white, that are not white than are white. And on most any given Sundays, it looks like that. It ebbs and flows of what it looks like, but it just matches our neighborhood. And we're, we're all across the political spectrums, and we're all across young and old, and, and we just have a diverse church. And, and so when we hear these stories or we see these things, we, we approach them from different places. 
And then as culture typically does, it draws us into two camps. And our message last week was really to find our way past those two things and to follow Jesus, not a certain team. And, and that's kind of where we pick up this morning. Uh, there was this, somebody online said uh, a, a little over a week ago, like, hey, if you're not speaking out about racial injustice, then you probably shouldn't be speaking tomorrow, meaning to pastors. And, and for me, I don't ever really do Pentecost Sunday or this or that. We teach through books of the Bible. It's a big value of ours that we would teach through whole books of the Bible, that we would go all the way through Isaiah. And we, we did break in the middle for holidays at Christmas. And we've had some things, but really over the last year and a half, almost every Sunday has been in Isaiah. And so as that was posted online, I just kind of ignore stuff like that. And I, but I do is I look at what, where we are. And God is continually speaking about this topic. God is continually speaking about things. Isaiah is a book that, as we just heard from this book, is written 2,800 years ago. And then it, most of it unfolds to a people 2,700 years ago, long before Jesus is born. And they are to unpack it in their context. They're to figure out what God is saying to them and how they're to respond to it. And that's our job. We're to hear this thousands of years later and we're to ask, what is God saying to us today? And so I want to, as this chapter in Isaiah, this is like the third section of Isaiah, the final section. And it's starting to talk about what will happen when God's people become God's people. The first 39 chapters roughly are an indictment on God's people being too much like the world around them. That they look like the foreign nations and they act like the people that worship other gods and they do all this. And and they don't look like God. And they don't look the way God has called them. And then from Isaiah 40 to 55, we start hearing about God's servant, Jesus, who will come, who will reconcile the world to God, who will change a people from their, na their nations or their cultures or their creeds, whatever they are, and he will draw them to be God's people. And then starting at this chapter, Isaiah 56, for the next 11 chapters, as we finish this book, God will start talking about revival in his people. So as always, we talk about revival in us. We look at what must change in me before I start aiming at what must change in someone else. And so we have to ask ourselves what has to happen inside the house of God before we start looking outside. And so just a starting point. So revival for God's people. God proclaims incredible blessings for his people but only after revival takes place in his people. Hear this. For the, the, the blessings are for his people, but only after revival takes place in his people. God again calls us to care for others who cannot care for themselves. This is one of the most commonly repeated themes throughout Isaiah. It starts in Isaiah 1, and over and over and over again, it reminds us, those of us that are called God's people, to care for people who cannot care for themselves. And I just want to use two examples today. Over the last six months, we've begun to partner with the foster care system in LA County. And it got disrupted in the middle as everything did by say, staying at home and, and everything else. And we started to figure out how to pick it back up. But just like with the foster care system, when we really read those words in Isaiah 1 and early chapters where it says to love the widow and the orphan, and we take that and we're like, okay, today, really, that's the, the single parent and the foster care kid. That's our context for those things. We didn't just run out 
and foster a bunch of kids. We didn't just run out and adopt kids or buy beds or do this. We started asking questions like, how do we engage this need? How do we, as a church, smartly, wisely, intelligently approach a need that God is clearly calling us to? Today, as we talk about justice, as we talk about people, as we talk about race, we have to do the same thing. We've got to, we've got to start asking those questions. How do we engage something that's so clear? That's so a problem, that is so wrecking our culture. What does God say about it? And then how can we engage it? How can we be different than the world around us? How can we stop looking like everyone else and start becoming someone brand new, someone who looks like Jesus? Let's pray and we will open up Isaiah 56. Jesus, as we gather this morning, I pray, would you speak? I have so little to say, God. I have nothing but you. God, your word leads us and guides us. So often I just get in the way. So God, help me to get out of the way. Would your your word speak? Would your spirit speak to us? And, And may all of us that are here or online, Lord, no matter how we're doing church today as a body, locally here in Cerritos or out in other states, as we've got people all over the place, how do, we, how do we hear your word in a new way, God? Help us to soften away the things on the outside that stop you from getting through to us, that prevent us from hearing you the way you would speak to us. Help us to set aside our biases and our backgrounds and our political parties and all the other things that shape us as we talk about this. And let us just for once be your people with open ears and open hearts to be your people. Help us to figure that out. Help us to take steps of faith towards you, God. That we would care for people that can't care for themselves, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I am the least likely person for this message. And those of you who know me, know my background, I, as, I, as I approach this conversation, I do so from a place of just not sure where we're going. Not sure what we're doing, but, but what I see in Scripture is so clear. What God tells us is so clear that there, there is no way to not do something, that there's no way to ignore or, or just kind of plug our ears again and let it keep going. And that's what God speaks about today. And so again, we're not leaving this. We're not creating some message that, we were, that fits our moment. We're working our way through Isaiah. And as God speaks to Isaiah, he speaks to us. So starting in verse 1, Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Last week, that's where we left off. Justice and righteousness. Righteousness is our posture towards God. Righteousness is us being obedient to God. And justice is us caring for others. Just as Brooks said, it is love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Love God with everything you can and love your neighbor. And as soon as Jesus says those words, the people that are following him and walking around and asking him questions, they say so really, like, who's my neighbor? Is that, is that the guy next door? Or on both sides maybe, or across the street? But do I really have to care about the guy across like kind of catty corner? Like, do we, would you, like how far does this, like which ones are, am I responsible for? And then Jesus tells the story of a Samaritan caring for a Jew. And you've got to know the culture to understand that the Samaritans were 
looked down upon as an understatement, but the, the mistreatment by Jews to Samaritans was incredibly painful and powerful. And yet we see a Samaritan caring for a man who has been beaten and robbed. And Jesus tells us that those that we come across, those that we encounter, those are our neighbors. The people we see, whoever we see, wherever we are, that's what we're responsible for. So here's what God says. Verse one again, thus says the Lord, making it strong. Here's what God says. He says, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. As God opens up this section in Isaiah that is leading us to what does revival look like in the people of God? He says four things. And as we get there, just understand when coronavirus started, we started seeing numbers increase as people were afraid and hurting, maybe lost jobs or, or just were suffering at home with depression and pain or illness or whatever it might be. We watched as the numbers of live streams climbed and, and we watched as people told us, hey man, I'm here, I wanna, I wanna know more, I wanna do this. And we knew as the church that we had an answer, we had hope, we had peace, we had something to give people. And then what happened was you heard the church start saying, oh, it's a revival, we're, we're praying for revival in the church, may God use this for revival. And what they really mean is, God, will you add people to our church? When they start asking about revival or speaking about revival, they're talking about, may the people that we count, whatever we do, may that number go up, and may the dollars or the small groups or the whatever, may it go up. When God speaks about revival, he talks about his people changing. And he says, when my people change, then I bless them. When I bless them, other people will see that. He says this, revival is four things. He says this, keep justice is the first one. God commands Christians to lead the way in standing up for the weak and vulnerable people. We can no longer be like the unbelieving world around us, divided on issues of justice, when justice is a command for God. We can no longer overlook justice, be divided about justice, make justice look like a political issue. We can no longer debate the merits when we watch someone die. We gotta quit asking questions on, well, what, what all, you know, whatever the questions we are, we're asking. We've gotta just say, okay, something's wrong. Someone God loved died. How do, we, how do we see this when this is a recurring thing? This isn't the first time. How do we do this and say, what God, what is just here? Where do we pursue justice? Remember, our posture towards others is justice. The second one is do righteousness. God commands Christians to actually do right things, not just simply believe right things. We can no longer be passive about injustice. God commands us to do righteousness as his people. God commands us to do the right thing. Not just think the right thing or post the right thing on social media, but to actually do the right thing. And churches get all divided about this, where one church is thinking that, you know, one group of churches think they think all the right things, and then the other group of churches over here, they're like, well, we're doing all the right things. Well, God is saying you got to do both. What is the right thing? Hard to figure out sometimes. But in this case, the right thing is starting to become clearer and clearer. Most of us are sitting back and our heart breaks as we watch this story unfold over and over again. And we've just got to ask, okay, God, where is justice? Where is righteousness? Where do we belong in this story? The next one, the third one is salvation must come. God says revival or salvation will come to us 
Revival is the presence of God, nearness of God, goodness and power of God visited on his church when justice and righteousness mark God's people. It's not about growing your numbers or doing it. Revival is about change. It's about the wind of God sweeping through and transforming things. It's that God says, when that takes place, I want to shower out blessing on you. I want to use you. I'm trying to get you in the game. Will you just get in the game? Will you ask your heart, where's your heart wrong? Will you, will you ask your feet, like, why aren't you moving towards the right thing? God says, when you do this, when you keep justice, when you do righteousness, then I want to bless you. I want to pour this out on you. I want to make you the people of God you are called to be. And fourth, God's righteousness revealed. God's people must change and live differently than the world around us so the rest of the world can see God. As we change, the world sees the goodness of God displayed in humanity and they want to know him. When we change, other people see God. When we are drawn into being Christ-like, other people around us get to see that. The most powerful part of my life and sharing it with others is not anything I went to school for or studied or did. It's that my life is drastically different than it was. And that because of that, we see the change of God. It's not me who did it. Anybody who knows me knows it's not me. It's the change, the transformation of God. That becomes a powerful witness to who God is. And in this moment, we need change. We need transformation. We need it in our hearts. We need it in our lives. We need it in our community. We need to figure out how to do the right thing for God. How do we honor God with the next step we take? Verse 2, believe it or not, we're just in verse 2. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. He says, here's how, here's who I bless. God says, those who do what I'm telling them to do, I bless. When people have gone through a transformation, have gone from not following Jesus to following Jesus, God has been the one who has moved first. The, the gospel took place first, we respond to it. God then changes, begins to transform our lives. God puts his spirit in us, causing us to further change, calling us to be more like him, calling us to be, be more obedient, calling us to be more loving, calling us to be more just, calling us to be more righteous. But so many times we just kind of park right there. And there we are like, well, I changed this, so I'm good. And God says, no, 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 it's, it's forever being changed into the image of Jesus. It, it is a constant transformation from who you were to who I'm calling you to be. And no one has arrived there, just Jesus. So he says this, blessed is the man who does this, who, who becomes justice, who becomes righteousness. He says, and the son of man who holds it fast keeps the Sabbath not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. God uses the Sabbath in this circumstance because it is something that people weren't doing. It's common today that people aren't doing it. And so the Sabbath was created before humanity was even sinful. As God is creating the earth, he creates a seventh day, and he says, on the seventh day, you rest and you spend time with God. And the Sabbath has been the thing, the first thing, it seems, as people drift away from God, they forget that God says, hey, give one day to me. That if you will take this time and spend this one day with me, I will change your life. And we don't do this as a work to earn God's love. We do this in response to who God is to us. 
But Sabbath is not just a keeping a day and giving it to God. By the way, it's not just a day off. It's a day with God, right? It's a day that we spend growing our faith, serving our faith, being with our God, being in our community of faith, maybe serving people in need, doing those things. But we are so busy in America with our busyness and our life that we're so caught up, almost no one takes a day and dedicates it to God. 2,700 years ago, when the people are reading his words, they didn't give a day to God either. And so Sabbath isn't just a rule to keep. It's an example of how people look like the world and not like God's people. God identified a people group that would live a different way and devote a day to him. And when the people became more like the community around them, more like the nations around them, more like the people that worshiped other gods, and they didn't do this in their obedience to God, they didn't do it, they looked just like the world. Modern day relevant, we look just like the world. We post the same things on social media, we act the same way, we spend time on both the same camps, and as you can see, and we don't spend a day with God. We don't take that time. And trust God for the other six days of the week. Trust God for the rest of our life. Christians are commonly, or more commonly than not, don't take a day and give it to God. We don't trust God with our time. We don't trust God with our work. We don't trust God with our our money. This is so common. And so God is using this as an example of obedience, or in this case, an example of disobedience. So here's the Sabbath. Here's a note for you. God created us to devote one day a week to Him, stopping our normal routine to spend a day focused on God. It recalibrates how we see life. It takes discipline and faith, and it allows us to lift our eyes up off of the world and see what God sees. If we're willing to take the time and spend the time, God transforms us even by doing that. And God is telling the people almost 3,000 years ago, like, listen, you've stopped. You look just like the rest of the world. For us, look at our lives. Do we look any different than the world? Verse 3, it says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. So a huge two verses, all to get us to verse 3. And for us, that's kind of where it goes south. Well, the foreigner, what does that mean? And then the eunuch, and, and... the foreigner outsiders outside of Judaism were not allowed to worship with them. They could worship from the outside. They could be part of the people from a distance, but they couldn't all the way be the people. And eunuchs weren't allowed either. And eunuchs were men that were emasculated. They'd been castrated. And they were hopeless for their future. They'd most of the time been enslaved and then castrated, and they had no hope of a future legacy or family. And so the outsider wasn't, always, wasn't brought all the way in. And the one who had no hope, no family, was excluded from worship. And God is saying, listen, that is not what I created. In fact, the entirety of the gospel points us to something entirely different. Fast forward almost a thousand years to what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. He says to Christians, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says this, remember you were outside too. So here we sit 2,000 years after Paul writes this, almost 3,000 after Isaiah. And as we sit and we look at the room, there's almost no one that has any Jewish history to them. All of us, almost all of us are outside of that. And that's what Paul is saying. Listen, remember you were outside of that. See, the gospel takes us from people that are outside of God. 
It takes us from people who are enemies of God, people who follow our own way, not God's way. And God says, I created you and loved you. I designed you. I know how you work best. I made you to be this way, that you would be people who glorify me. And yet you have chosen your own way. And the Bible calls us in that without Christ, apart from Christ, calls us enemies of God. We love to think of ourselves as good people, just maybe not doing the right thing. God says you're outside the family of faith. You're enemies of God. But through Christ who lived a sinless life and died our death, the death we deserve, through that, as he is buried in the grave to cover our sin, God brings us inside the family. As Jesus is resurrected to life, he gives us new life, and he makes us family. He calls us sons and daughters, heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Listen to that verse again as it says this, remember you were separated from Christ, alienated, strangers, having no hope, without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We'll go back to the note, Marcia. Outsiders and the hopeless. So as you're following us along, when we talk about outsiders and hopeless people, it says this, God says in his, that in his people, the outsider and the hopeless, the weak and the powerless are his, are his family with a promise of the future. If we are God's people, we're to include others who are vulnerable. We are to defend the powerless as if they're our own children, and we're to welcome them like they were born to us. That we would take the outsider and bring them in, that we would take the hopeless and give them hope, that we would take the weak and give them our power. That the family of God would do this. Back in Ephesians, after Paul writes that to the church, in the next verse, in verse 14, it says this, for Jesus himself is our peace. He who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility. What a more, I can't find a more appropriate term for our current climate in our world right now. That as the, literally globally there are protests about the death of George Floyd. Literally other countries, European nations protesting the same thing that took place in our nation. And as our nation hurts and aches and is angry and is, is, is protesting and looting and riot and doing all the things that are going on, some, many, most, peacefully, and some not, what we see on TV polarizes us further. And there's no phrase or term that more aptly describes right now than a wall of hostility driving us towards this idea that either you wear this jersey or this jersey, well, that may be fine in football. It's not okay in choosing what is just and unjust. That you can't pick a political team that doesn't fully represent Jesus and say, I'm just this. Jesus says, you're greater than that. I am greater than that. Justice and righteousness. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath. So he talks about now hopeless people that become obedient to me who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. Your faith is seen. Verse 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. God says to the people, listen, you who are hopeless, you who are without a family, if you come and you follow me, I will give you an inheritance better than my sons and daughters. Now, why would God say better than my own sons and daughters? 
Why would God say, better than the people that I have been leading and guiding and speaking to, who I've been calling to return to me, who look more like the world than they look like mine, but they're mine. Why, why would God say, if you're from the outside, or if you're the one that's hopeless, if you will come back and obedient, be obedient, then I will bless you more than I will bless them. And the answer is simple, because those of us that are inside the family of faith have dropped the ball. God says, if my people won't listen, I will tell another people. If, if the folks that I call mine or who identify themselves by my name, and as Christians, that's us. As Christians, that's us. We identify ourselves by the name of Jesus. We are Christ, Christians, right? That we would be those people. We identify ourselves by Jesus. We are his people. And what he would say to us today is, if you won't listen, I will find somebody else to use. If you won't soften your heart and look beyond your teams and look beyond your biases, if you won't do it, I will find somebody else who will. And so God says, listen, I will take someone else and I will bless them. Romans and, and, and Romans, Paul in the New Testament quotes Hosea, an Old Testament prophet. He says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. There are some crazy warnings in all of Scripture, some of them that freak me out. One of them, there's a several times where God says, listen, if you won't turn around and do the right thing, I will stop listening to your prayers. When God says that, that stops me. I try to say, okay, what did he just tell me? What is he saying? How would God not want to hear my prayers? And in this case, here's what God is saying to all of us. If you will not listen, if you will not change, if you will not do the right thing, I will find someone else who will. Verse 6, it says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You hear the same theme repeated. Foreigners will come, outsiders will come, and they will become family. Those who are obedient, I will bless. And then he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all people. My house, God says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all people. Not for some, not for the other, not the ones who look like me, or not for the ones that don't look like me. My house will be called a house of prayer for all people. As a pastor, there's an interesting thing. As we gather people, as we teach people, as we do as we lead the church towards God, and all church leaders, as we experience this, they're in the 15, 20 years I've been leading churches and planting churches, starting churches, leading churches. There is this one thing that is the hardest thing to get people to join you in, and for whatever reason, it's prayer. You can gather people, you can get people together, and for whatever reason, they will come for this they will come for a barbecue. They will come for children's ministry or small groups. Do you ask people to gather together and pray? It's like they don't hear you. And yet God repeatedly calls us to speak, to hear him, to talk to him. That the creator of everything, the creator of the universe, the most, imperson, uh, most important being ever, far beyond kings and presidents and rock stars, that God would want to hear my voice is amazing. That God would want to speak to me is amazing. And as God calls people to come and to pray together, why it seems to be so challenging, I don't know. 
As coronavirus set in into the culture, what we saw is more people began to engage as people lost hope, or as people lost joy, or as people lost jobs, or as people got sick. Whatever was taking place around them, more people would kind of gather online and pray. Would we learn our lesson that we need it even when things aren't going wrong? That we would, that we would seek out God even when things are right, that we would seek God in those days. Tonight, as we gather again, live stream, as we live stream a night of prayer, some of our elders and leaders and their wives and, and, some, and some of our worship team, as we get together and just spend time from six to seven a night praying together, would you join us? You can comment on one of the live streams. You can put your, push, post your prayer request or the topics you want to see prayed about. And as we gather together, would you join us in prayer? As Isaiah calls out almost 3,000 years ago, my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Verse 8 says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. It's that repeated warning of, if my people won't listen, I will find people that will. I was saying, if my people won't stop and soften their heart and change, if they won't, I will find people that will. That I will accomplish my will through someone, even if it's not them. And then God says to his people who are not listening, he says these words, verse 9, all you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They're all without knowledge. They are silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. After some really incredibly colorful metaphors about what people are like when they're not listening to God, that they are these sleeping dogs that do nothing, that they are shepherds that don't care. He reminds us when we look like the rest of the world, when we continue to look like everyone else, that that's his image for us. And he says, all you've done, as he says in verse 11, you've turned your own way, each to his own gain, one and all. As God calls out to his people, as Jesus calls out to his church, he says, you have got to change. You've got to listen. We've got to lay down everything else and follow him. And he says, I've been crying out to my people, crying, telling them, telling them where to go, what to do. I've been telling them over and over, millennia after millennia after millennia, for thousands of years, as people will come to God and then wander away, he continues to call all of us. And as he does, he says, listen, if you won't answer, I will find someone else who does. And if you won't, this is who you are. And he closes with this, verse 12. He says, come, come, they say, let us all get wine and fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow we will be, it will be like this day, great beyond measure. He says, when you, my people, don't listen to me, when you go and you act like the rest of the world, he says, here's what you're doing. You're just saying, let's just grab a beer, let's hang out. Today's great, tomorrow's going to be great too. He says, when you bury your head in this and you say, today was fine, tomorrow will be fine too. He says, when you sit it out, nothing will change. When you sit back and you find your own comfort, when you ignore the situation around you, God calls us numb and blind. Here's a note for you. We'll pretty much close with this. You can no longer sit around doing nothing, pretending the problem will go away. We must stand up for the vulnerable. We must repent and learn and act. Just as we have begun with the foster care system, we must also learn how we can speak, about, speak out about issues of race and justice in our communities. And again, if you know me and you know my background, I'm the last one to have a whole lot of answers. 
What I know is what's wrong. What I know is I watched a guy die, and there was nothing right about his death. And I know that as, even with what I look like and with my background, I know I chose this. I wasn't born this way. And that I don't have the same thing as someone else who was born black feels. I don't know what that looks like. What I know is I begin to listen and ask. And I don't have all the answers, but what I have is we're taking steps in one area. We're learning how to figure out how to care for the foster care kids in LA County. And then we'll drift into Orange County as we kind of straddle both. We're asking questions. We didn't run out and adopt a bunch of kids. We went and we started asking questions from trusted people and just said, hey, how do we do this? What are the actual needs? Not what do I think the needs are, what are the needs? How do we do this? And we've been working with the Family Table LA to figure out our own approach to the foster care need in LA County. In the same way, we need to start being open and start figuring out what is our way to preserve justice as racial inequality and racial injustices take place in front of us. And again, maybe we don't have all the answers, but we haven't even been listening. In fact, we haven't even been asking the questions. And so as a church, we're just gonna stop for a minute and say, you know what? It's time to ask different questions. It's time to say different things. It's, it's time to be different people. It's no longer time to just jump into this team or jump into that team and just all the talking points that go with both sides. So what do we do? I saw two stories this last week, both which impacted me, neither of which are actually being told a whole lot. I saw one as people were down in Van Nuys and they're out there and they're protesting. And I watched a guy run up with a sledgehammer and he runs up and he busts the window of this store so that he and his buddies or whoever are gonna go in and loot the store, right? We watched this happen a hundred times. But on this occasion in Van Nuys, I'm watching this story live and I watched these protesters backed up and cover the window and started standing arm to arm, blocking people from going in. They knew that they're ruining our message and they stopped them from going in. The protesters stopped them. The police were doing whatever they were doing, wherever they were doing it. The protesters stopped them. The protesters started doing the right thing in that circumstance. And then a couple days go by and we all saw part of this story, but it's the second half of this story that hit me. We saw, the, they saw all those cops marching down that sidewalk, whatever it, wherever it was, it was out of state. And we saw as one or two cops hit an old man, and that old man hit the ground, his head bounced off the concrete, and we watched it, and I don't know what happened before, I don't know, I don't know how we got there, in fact, I don't care. What we saw was this happen, and after that, as the cop who hit him starts to bend down to say something, what, was, what happened was, and this is a story that's not, everybody's hearing about how the cop did something wrong. Nobody's talking about the cop that was behind him that grabbed him by the vest and kept him moving. And when another dude turned around as he's starting to call, I assume, for medical, the other guy turns around, he pushes him too. We watched as a cop finally did what we thought he should have done with George Floyd, and he did the right thing. If we can watch protesters do the right thing, if we can watch cops learn how to do the next right thing, how as a church can we not start doing the right thing? How can we not start asking different questions? And again, I have the worst story to tell this with, but in some ways, I have the better story to tell this with. Because I've seen it from the inside and from the outside. Because I know what it looks like, and I know how it can be different. 
I don't know how to fix the problems, but I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, God knows how to fix the problems. And that if we will soften our hearts and begin to listen, and if we will build up the courage and begin to take next steps of faith, next steps of just doing the right thing, then God will honor that, God will bless that, and the world around us will see who God is. Time is gone for telling everybody else to change and and not looking inside the four walls. That's our job. That we will look at us and we will change us. Let's pray. Jesus, we gather today because you died for us. Inconvenient, horrible, painful death. Yet you sacrificed everything for us. And you call us to follow you and live and look like you. And I think in moments we do and in other moments we don't. And Jesus, sadly in this moment, the church doesn't look much different than the world around us. We're just as polarized over what's right or wrong. We're just as numb and blind. We're just as inactive. And we drift into, just like the rest of the world around us, we drift into political narratives. It's time for us to shut off the news and start hearing your voice. It's time for us to soften our hearts and do the right things. It's time for us to be where you've called us to be. It's also time for us to admit we don't have all the answers. Stop being the arrogant church that acts like we know what's wrong. When a lot of times we just don't. And let us listen to the voices as they speak. And let us learn what you have called us to do. Jesus, you are God. You gave everything for us. You tell us in return we give everything for you. You move first, we respond. Help us, Jesus, to respond today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.